Welcome to Curva Mundial. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Curva Mundial. I am your host, Sal Bono, and today my next guest comes from us from Scotland. He is the founder and designer of one of my favorite clothing brands, The North Curve. Casual apparel inspired by classic retro football clothing and culture of yesteryear, as they describe it. This is going to be a special episode down memory lane, so please welcome to the show Scotland and Sampdoria supporter Graham Maloski. Welcome, Graham. Come and stay, Sal. How are you doing? Tutte bene. Very good. I've never heard the Italian language. That is the limit. I'm, I, that's my limit. I'm done now. I can't. I can say nonchamali and then maybe order a table for two, and then we are done. <laughs> We're, we're gonna have a good time i'm, I'm a little bummed it's it's kind of early for me in new york sure uh, it's mid-afternoon for you so if you um you know if you want to have a pint enjoy um, you know what i was i was genuinely debating i've got a cup of coffee here but i was thinking is it bad form if i sort of pitch up with a a, a glass of rum and coke okay so i'm gonna think i'm some kind of alcoholic <laughs> nah no, nah, you'd be as relaxed as you got to be. As, when you start slurring the words is when I'll cut it off. But <laughs> coffee is good. You know, there's so much to discuss today. So let's jump right in. Sure. I found out about you around 2018 after you posted a shirt that you created and someone retweeted it. It was yeah. about my childhood hero, Toto Scalacci. Mind you, oh, Scalacci yeah. merchandise is not easy to come by. So I went online. I'm like, what is this North Curve? And I found out all about you and fell in love with everything that you did in that store and continue to do. And all the merchandise that wasn't available when I was a kid, I finally felt was created. I told my buddies about it. They started ordering. I just had to snatch up as much as I could or as much as my wife would allow me to (laughs) before reminding me I have too many T-shirts. So how did the North Curve come about? And... How and obviously that era of the 80s, 90s had such an impact on you. You know, what was that the main purpose of like putting this store together? Yeah, I mean, there's probably, yeah, there's probably two parts to how it came about, I guess. You're right, the 80s, 90s, I don't want to sound like the old guy shouting at the clouds kind of thing. That how his, his it's all right, I am all the time. It's fine. <laughs> well, let's face it, the 80s and 90s just were better. Um, I was thinking about this before uh, before speaking to you this afternoon about about why that might be, and I think the eighties and nineties is probably the last time where you had footballers who were genuine characters, who outside of the game appeared to you know have a life. They they might smoke a bit, they might drink a bit, they might womanize a bit. Um, compared to today, where players I don't know they seem to be polished within an inch of their lives. You know they you don't. They're taught from, it seems pretty early on, don't do or say anything that'll get you in the news, you know, don't say anything controversial, don't do anything. Whereas in the 80s and the 90s, you know, players like, obviously, Maradona, players like Socrates, um, players like Croy from the 70s and 80s or what have you, all of them smokers, all of them drinkers, less said about Maradona's extracurricular activities, the better, probably, but, you know, real genuine characters, but characters on the pitch as well, they would do something maverick all the time, things, something unexpected. And again, I don't, maybe, I, maybe I'm just rose-tinted spectacles and nostalgia, but today's players, I don't see them doing anything maverick on the pitch. I don't see them doing a, a trick that, I, I, you know, you just, you know, gasp at or whatever, or very rarely you'll see it. I mean, if you think of um, when um, uh, Neymar. Oh, yeah. So he does a rainbow flick in a game for, I think he was still in Barcelona, and the press went absolutely mental, you know, derogatory terms thrown at him from all sides for having the audacity to do a rainbow flick against an opponent. It's like, well, that's why you watch football. You know, you want to see that kind of thing. And on, I, on, the flip side, on the flip side, if it was Wayne sure. Rooney doing a bicycle kick at Manchester United, it was like a top moment in sport. Oh, like around yeah, the middle of the century, yeah. So it, <laughs> yeah, right. So it's, it's, it's a weird, like... You know, it's a weird balance, but I see what you're saying, though, for sure. I, I just, yeah, I don't, I think, is it nostalgia? I don't know. I hope not. But I, I just, I think that my feeling is that, like I said, the character of the game in the 80s and 90s is very, very different from that. It's a long time ago now as well. We're talking 30, 40 years ago right. now for a lot of these players. But 
And football was a very different thing to go and watch in the 80s and 90s than it is now. I mean, when I first went to football in 1985, I would be about nine, yeah, nine years old. And there was no women and certainly very, very few children there. And it was very, this is in Scotland, it was very, England was the same though. It was very rough and ready. There was no seating, everyone was standing up. Um, so there was a lot more people and it, you know, it wasn't uncommon for instead of guys, you know, if they needed to do the toilet, they wouldn't go to the toilet because it was more or less a trench at the back of the stand. So you would, you know, it wasn't that uncommon to, to turn around and see someone basically, can we swear? Yeah, yeah, have fun. <laughs> it wasn't that uncommon for a grown man to be pissing down the back of your leg on the terrace, you know what I mean? So it was a very, very different <laughs> game. Um, to watch, let alone to play in and that kind of thing in that time. And it's become more and more sanitized, is that the word? And more sort of, which is you know, nothing wrong with that. The fact right. that it's more family friendly and you can take your children and right. it's more accommodating for women and all that thing, that's great. But like I say, it was a very different time to watch football and play fo- football then. And I just think there were more characters to latch onto then. Um, right. You know, in the, the game. You're right about the character thing because, and I think that's why so many people latch on to someone like Ibrahimovic now because he's the only one that really plays up a persona versus like, you know, Maradona. I, I, when Maradona passed away, I would have conversations with people. I'm like, if Maradona was a player today, he would be canceled. Like, he wouldn't be, like, he wouldn't be given oh. any sort of chance to do anything. And to me, like, Maradona was the most human who has ever lived because of the fact that he wore all of his strengths and victories on one sleeve and then his faults and mistakes and problems on another. And he owned up to a lot of them. He owned, he didn't own up to everything, but there was something intriguing and admiring about a guy like that. And, you know, and we referenced Toto Scalacci earlier. Scalacci looked like a guy who was like a bouncer at a club that was like smoking some cigarettes, <laughs> cutting cheese, being like, you can go in. You can. Yeah, I mean, you know, these guys didn't, didn't look, look like, like a footballer. footballer. Yeah, they, they, didn't, they didn't look like footballers. Again, now players are, and again, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, they, they, these players were fit in their own way in those days, but the, the players now are fit on, a, and you know, scales upwards from, from then. Um, players from them wouldn't be able to compete now because they wouldn't be able to keep up at that pace for right. so long. Right. Players are running routinely 15, 16K every game now. I mean, you know, when you watch the likes of Socrates or Zico or whatever, they weren't running 15, 16K <laughs> Absolutely no chance. They would pass it. They didn't need to run. They would pass it, you know what I mean? Or they would do something. They, they would faint and take off on a run or whatever. They weren't... It wasn't as sort of fast and it was still a physical game and, and a lot of ways a much more physical game right. but um but it wasn't i don't know a lot of football seems quite robotic to me now i don't interesting i don't want to have a go at man city because they are you know probably the best club sides going at the moment but i don't i don't find them very entertaining to watch i'll probably mm. get absolutely crucified for this but i don't find city very very entertaining to watch i, I find this, they tend to score the same goal over and over again, they, you know, they work it to the wing, someone overlaps, um, they pass it to them, who puts in a flat cross across the six-yarder to be tapped in by a non-rushing midfielder. You know, do that four or five times a game, and they've won. And I just, you know, you don't, like, I posted a goal on Twitter the other day, the, the Socrates and Zico combining yes. to, to score against Italy in 82. I can't remember the last time I saw, I mean, obviously it's a pretty exceptional goal, but I don't remember the last time I saw anything close to to that in a in a recent game. You know, it's just two geniuses just you know tearing apart one of the the, the hardest best defenses ever. <laughs> right. You know, it is interesting that you know as you, as we reflect on what the game used to be like. And you're right. Maybe it is nostalgia. Maybe it is rose colored glasses. And obviously, there is a difference. You know, when I look at a guy like Mo Salah, who I absolutely love and have watched his career since he was at Fiorentina, and the speed in which he plays, it's mm. like, I, it's almost as if he's the, it's like Usain Bolt with a sure. soccer ball. Like, I, I don't remember anyone being that fast. I'm sure there were 
obviously there have been plenty of super fast players, but like he just he's like that turbo button on PlayStation. Just yeah. you know, and he's and you know, now he's like you know, pushing 30, he's getting quote unquote older, and he shows no sign to slope it now. Like that's the thing where it's they're able to go on longer. And I appreciate that. I appreciate the fact that like Ibrahimovic, again, we talked about him earlier. Yeah, he's 40. Yes, there's a lot of wear and tear. It's not the age, it's the mileage with him. But there is something quite astonishing to be said that he can play at an elite level. Ronaldo can still play at an elite level. Messi is, you know, supposed to be past his prime at this point. Still looking pretty good to me. Um, Same thing with, you know, Marcello and Sergio Ramos, uh, Piquet. Like the, the fact that like they can go longer at an elite level. They may not get the minutes that they used to, but the fact that they can still push, you know, I appreciate that, you know? So I wonder now if like in 20, 30 years from now, the generation that grew up with these players will create like a North Curve-esque store sure, or something yeah, yeah. where it's just like, this is, you know, Sergio Ramos or Puyo, you know, what yeah, yeah, yeah. was older. And I, I love that guy, but like, you know, do something with his hair. The way like you had taken like just little things that made the players special, just like a logo or a symbol. Yeah, and you yeah. were putting them into pillows at first, and then you focused yeah. on the clothing. You know, what was the inspiration behind all of that? Because again, we grew up in an era where that stuff was hard to come by. I mean, we were talking about fake jerseys and, you know, beforehand, <laughs> fake kits beforehand, but those were really the only things that you could get in the 80s, 90s, unless you went to the stadiums and spend yeah, your yeah. fortune which you know it's already expensive for an american to get to europe so let alone go to a game so sure. was that all did that all play a role into this yeah well that's that's kind of that's probably the other aspect of it that up until probably the last couple of years like you say you couldn't really get shirts unless you went to your club store which would be you know near the stadium or in the stadium i mean again in the 80s the club stores weren't even in in the stadium I mean, you go to italy a lot of the, the, the stadium don't have a club store in their stadium, which is absolutely, I mean, that's another, that's for another day, but I find that incredible. But yeah, so my, my thought was that there's generally an accepted top 20 of football shirts that everyone loves and calls classics. I'm not going to go through them all. We all know what they are. But if you want to get one, up until very recently, thanks to our Chinese friends, you would never be able to, to get one or even a replica because they were so rare. And a lot of them were from the 80s and 90s that people really covet. So if you want to get one, you know, first of all, first of all good luck finding one. Right. And then by then, good luck selling your kidney to buy one because you're going to have <laughs> Because these, the price of these shirts is just insane. Not, you know, we can't, no one can afford to, to buy them. If you can, you're certainly not going to wear them out. You know, go outside wearing these shirts that right. cost hundreds and hundreds of pounds. So I was trying to find a way to sort of, I don't know, gently nod towards these designs without outright copying them. But also, another thing with football shirts is when you're wearing them anywhere other than to a football game or to some kind of football event, they kind of they scream, I am a football shirt. You know what I mean? There's, there's no getting away. There's nothing subtle about football shirts. It's just, I am a fan of this team and I'm in your face. You know what I mean? There's, there's, right. there's nothing, as I say, subtle about it. So I was trying to maybe find a way of doing t-shirts and sweatshirts that are a little bit more subtle, finding a way to make them, you know, something you could wear to, to the pub or the restaurant or whatever, without them screaming, I am, you know, a Juve fan or, you know, I am a Roma fan, or, you know what I mean? So it was trying to combine all of that and, and yeah, keep it subtle and keep it as a, as a sort of, sort of leisure wear for want of a better way of putting it, I guess. Um, and to represent, as I said, the, the, the sort of shirts that everyone, knows are you know, you know are classics like the, the Holland Germany, the ones connected with Maradona that we all know, the Boca, the, the Napoli obviously is probably the right. most well-known shirt among a certain age group of men like us. <laughs> you know, between Napoli and Germany 90, I think they're probably the two most famous shirts that guys of our age know kind of thing. For sure. Um, Scalacci, I'm sure, as you alluded to earlier, I mean, the Italy... The World Cup in Italy in 1990 is such a touchstone for so many people mm-hmm. our age. Everything sort of proliferated from then. Before, before that World Cup, football, certainly in Britain, like I said before, was very much a rough and ready man's game. And, uh, you know, it wasn't, wasn't 
anywhere near as popular as it is now. Um, TV coverage obviously exploded after that. Um, but Italy seemed to be something that just, yeah, took the game to new levels all over the world, and certainly in the UK. And a lot more people who weren't necessarily into football, excuse me, uh, after the, uh, the Italy World Cup, they certainly were. And I don't know if that's probably in large part due to England doing quite well in that World mm-hmm. Cup, um, having historically done not that well since they won it. Right. That may have had a big part. But there was something about that World Cup that grabbed a lot of people, certainly in the UK. And there was, a, there was a lot of facets to it for why. I mean, our coverage of it was, I don't know, it's just very well done, certainly by the BBC. There was the, the anthem, uh, or sorry, the, the, the opening credits always had um, Pavarotti singing um, Ness and Dharma. Yeah, which, which I, I love the fact that Andrea Bocelli recently sang that at the Queen's Jubilee and I'm going like <laughs> wow I mean the fact that like of all this you're fine you have like the greatest singer in the world or greatest tenor in the male tenor in the world but of all the songs to give him they gave him or they asked him to do the song that England used as the backdrop 32 years ago for this tournament which again like I was like wow that's how impactful the tournament was yeah. That even Still the queen is just like play Ness and Dorma, please. Like, come on. I mean, for 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 anyone look for certainly for an Italian like yourself looking outside in, that must look absolutely mental. Oh, I mean, it is. Why, why is the queen having Ness and Ness and Dorma sang at her? You know, of all the songs, but even to this day, it still resonates and it still brings that you know Proustian rush of oh yeah, tell you nightly. Because it, it was it was huge. I mean, it I don't think it got to number one in our in the in UK charts, but certainly lots of people went out and bought it as a single. Right. I mean, it's you know, it's it's a pretty, before then it was a pretty obscure, I guess, um, opera song. And after that, now it's just it just means Italian ninety. It's just that's what anyone in Britain of a certain age uh, thinks of when they hear it straight away. Straight away. <laughs> it's amazing. And I mean, you talk about characters too. England had probably one of the greatest characters that tournament, Paul Gascoigne. Sure. I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, again, he was another big, big driver of, of football becoming extreme. When he got back home from that tournament, he was probably, you'd be hard pressed to find someone who didn't know who he was. Um, again, people who wouldn't be ordinarily following football certainly knew who Paul Gascoigne was and why they knew him. Because that was what, when he cried in the semi-final, when he got uh, and realised he wasn't going to make the final if England got through, that was a very, very unusual thing for, you know, buttoned up UK guy, certainly a footballer as well, because footballers would not, you know, in, in the UK show emotions at all. Certainly, certainly wouldn't be standing crying on the pitch, you know, it right. just wasn't something that happened. These were hard working class guys and they weren't, they weren't going to stand in front of people and cry. So when he did that, that was that was something huge. It showed a vulnerability and then that kind of thing that had never been seen before, I don't think, on a football pitch in the UK. So he he, yeah. I mean, the whole thing just and also I'm sure you're you you're well aware of the program Football Italia that, that started when he when he got bought by Lazio and then idiotically broke his own leg, etc. But when that program started, he should have been playing and wasn't, if I remember rightly. I might be wrong on that. Um because they bought him and then he broke his leg and right. so it was a year before he actually got there. But a programme of highlights and, and then full games appeared on our TV. And we only had, I think we only had four channels on our, on our TV at that point. So to have Italian football or any football that wasn't, you know, domestic was very, very unusual. You, you, you wouldn't see um, foreign teams at all really unless it was the European Cup final or the UEFA right. Cup final or something and even then you might want to see it if a, an English or Scottish team was involved in it so to suddenly have lots and lots of Italian football out of nowhere every weekend was incredible it was amazing and you know that and all the best players in the world at that time were there and had been for a while actually even since the 80s really they had had all the best players um, in the world um, you know, crazy things like Zico turning up at Udinese and Socrates turning up at Fiorentina. I mean, that's, you know, Udinese, I've got no business buying Zico. You know, it's crazy. So to see that sort of thing was, yeah, really. 
And so that just, there's a, there's a whole generation of guys our sort of age, and women to be fair, who grew up on that program and still remember it and still, you know, run a business off the back of it. <laughs> like, <laughs> Which is great. If I'm I honest. Mean, look, as a consumer of all of this, because for so many, in America, growing up in America, everything is merchandise, as you know. I mean, we're, yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're great at making merchandise. You know, it's, it's, it's like why every kid owns a pair of Jordans to this day where like they may not have even seen Michael Jordan play basketball. It's like, we're great at doing that. So as a consumer in America, especially in that era, when you couldn't get these things, it was a bummer. Like I, when my relatives traveled to Italy to see other relatives, you know, um, they would bring me back something, which was great. And I still, to this day, hold it as like sacred items. Like, you know, I tell my wife, put this in my casket. Like, you know, when I go like this, I know you can't take it with you, but let me take it with me. Even though I want to get cremated, let them, you know, things melt around me. Um, I, I also, you know, it's like, I have my car from Italia 90, like my model Ferrari, you know, it's, I have like little trinkets and, for all these years, I've held on to them for this reason. And then when stores like yours opened up, it was just like, I've waited my whole life for this, you know, but, you know, so it is interesting to see that. And again, what was being sold to us in America from overseas was that everybody watches every league of football. So when I hear these stories that that's not the case, my head is also exploding because I'm like, this is a fucking lie. You know, it's, it, you know, it's, it's sort of, it, I'm still flabbergasted by it. You're not the first guest on this podcast to tell me these stories um, sure. about like how Italian 90 came about and watching the Italian league for the first time. So, but you, as someone growing up in Scotland, you know, and you got your domestic league and you have, you know, what then became premier league. What was it like seeing city off for the first time, especially post Italian 90? And you became a Sampdoria supporter, which is what I love because it's such a general specific team. You know, sure. so how did all of that come about? Well, I knew you were going to ask me about Sampdoria, and I was thinking about it. And I, the honest answer is, I don't know. I don't. I, I have honestly no clue why Sampdoria. You just, I mean, people don't sit down and think, right? Who am I going to support? Hopefully, you know what I mean. It just, you, you just kind of. It, it happens by osmosis, really, doesn't it? You just kind of sort of find yourself following a team without realizing why. Um, part of it, probably, because I'm a very shallow man, is that they have the, the, the best shirts in the game. You know, I mean, they, they, they even print that in the inside collar of a Samp shirt. I don't know if you've got one, but I, I don't own one, but I know what you're talking about. But explain. Yeah, yeah. They actually print, you know, La Malia Puebla del Mondo inside the, the inside neck of every Sampdoria shirt they sell now. And no one argues, you know, everyone's like, yeah, you're right. You know, <laughs> it really is. So that's maybe part of it. I don't know. But I've never consciously thought, oh, I should be a Sandoria fan. I think, yeah, maybe I'll do that. But so, that, I, I, yeah, um, I mean, it's purgatory following them at the moment. So it's not something you do if you want to, you know, win stuff or, you know, be happy to watch <laughs> football. It's, 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 it's terrible. But, you know, so Sandoria, I don't know. But, yeah, as a, as a young Scotsman, watching Italian football, it's another, it was another planet, another, you know, these, well, the standard of play for a start was another planet away from the standard of play. I mean, Scotland, our club teams were pretty good, actually, in the 80s. We won yeah. a fair of Holland. You know, Aberdeen were very good. They won the Cup Winners' Cup. Dundee United won the UEFA Cup, beating Barcelona along the way. Uh, Aberdeen beat Real Madrid along the way. Um, so, you know, we, we punched well above our weight in the 80s. And then from the mid-80s onwards, not so much. And it tailed off for a number of reasons, um, money mostly, but um, and coverage and that kind of thing. But to see these players that we were seeing and the standard of play uh, and just, you know, the stadiums and the, uh, and the sun was shining, you know. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, we did... 90% of our games, it rains or, or it's really windy, too windy to play. You know what I mean? And that's, a, you know, the keeper kicks the ball and it comes straight back at him. You watch games in Italy, you've got none of that. The sun's out, everyone's, you know, smiles on their face. And yeah, it was, it was like watching football on another planet for a number of reasons. It was just very, for one of a better word, glamorous. It was just glamorous compared to 
dull, grey, sort of raining, kick and rush football that <laughs> Scotland <laughs> sometimes has to, you know, put up with kind of thing. Um, so yeah, it was yeah, like I say, it's like another world. Um, and it, it, it felt a long, a long way away as well. It felt like a very distant place because in those days. When you watch World Cups, you had no idea who was playing for these countries. So when you see a brilliant player, it was a surprise and a bit and a good surprise because, you know, there was no internet. These days you can jump on the internet and you can find out about any player right down to, you know, youth levels. You know, we, you know, you can find out who Barcelona is signing for their under eights if you want it. So you can, there's, there's no mystery about players anymore. But even up till 1990, maybe even, well, whenever the internet hit late 90s. You had no clue who was playing for Brazil because you never saw any Brazilian club football. You might have saw a couple of players who were playing in Italy or whatever. Same goes for Argentina. Um, we didn't have coverage when Napoli were winning the league um, in Serie A in the, in the 80s. Oh, wow. Uh, our coverage started in 90, was it 92, I think. So we didn't see any of that. So really, we, did, you know, we only saw Maradona at World Cups. Right. So we saw him in '86 and we saw him in '90, but we, we, you know, we didn't walk, we didn't know really anything that was going on in Napoli, what he was doing there until well after, because it, there was just no TV coverage to see it. Right. Um, it's it is quite amazing though what the world was like before we were all connected. I mean, you know, our Scotland, for instance, as it seemed to be as a kid before the internet, Scotland was just this magical place with like dragons. You know, that's what was my picture of what Scotland was like growing yeah, up. Yeah, we still got them. Yeah. All right, good. All right, well, I got to come find some. Um, you know, but it was just, so. Let alone seeing you know different play as you said, like different players. You know, that's what I love about the World Cup, and I still love about the World Cup. And there's a naivety to why I love the World Cup, and you know, barring all of the terrible things that, you know, FIFA has done, you know, human rights accusations, mm. which is like violations and ac uh, accusations of human rights violations, um, uh, I, which they have denied, but I have to say that legally. Um, sure. But, you know, it's... Uh, we all know. Uh, you, know uh, you said it, not me. <laughs> <laughs> Allegedly, no. Yeah, no. Right. So it's, uh, you know, but there is something amazing about seeing that moment in time for a month every four years of the world coming together you get to see players from different african nations that you might not see yeah sure you know sadio mane at mm -hmm. senegal but what about these other guys you know yeah, yeah. that's what i oh you know especially like when drogba was so huge i was like oh now i get to see what the rest of cote d'ivoire looks like well yeah, yeah. you know when kevin prince boatang who, when he played for Milan, represented Ghana. I'm like, oh, now I have a focal point to watch for Ghana because this guy's playing for my club. And now the rest of this Ghana team, the Black Stars, are just so much fun to watch. But I remember as a kid seeing Rene Higuita and Carlos Valderrama for the first time. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, and seeing was, Valderrama was just mind-blowing. Right? You know? <laughs> so did that, like, so, like, here I am as, like, this, like, 10-year-old watching World Cup 94 and going like, these guys are amazing. Like, what, did you feel the same? I mean, it may not be for them specifically, but it was, was it like that for you? Yeah, that I know that's what it was like every World Cup or every European championship, yeah. as I say, you had no, we only had domestic football on TV. So you had no way of, of knowing who these people were until they, they rocked up at the World Cup with their massive mad hair and, <laughs> you know, and their mustaches and all that kind of thing. I mean, Valderrama, I think, played briefly for Montpellier in France, but oh, that's right. we, we yeah. weren't getting any French right. football, so even, you know, wouldn't even have known him from there. But, yeah, that's why it was so exciting and amazing in, in the 80s and 90s as, as compared to now. I mean, I guess if you're in your 20s now, you don't really care because you don't know what was going on in the 80s and right. 90s. It's something that happened before you were even born. So they don't know what they're missing because, you know, but, yeah, I just think it was, I guess an old man shouting at the clouds, but I just think it was better when you didn't know. I think it was better when there was mystery. And like you say, players like this turn up, and you're like, bloody hell, who's this? And then they turn to be great players as well. So, you know, they're not just a guy with mad hair. They're, they're a, you know, a very good player. Phenomenal. I mean, you watch the Rene Higuita scorpion kick, and you yeah. don't tell me that is one of the most beautiful things you've ever seen, or the most also insane things of all time. Well, yeah, I mean, if, you know, Scottish keepers, still to this day won't be doing that you know <laughs> that's never going to happen in scotland
On the flip side, though, social media has done wonders, obviously, for connection now, because now Scotland, I'm talking to you in real time, and Scotland is, as you say, still has dragons, but they're not that mythical anymore. I can find yeah. But the what's interesting, though, is, is that the flip side, what was it like being a Sampdoria supporter before the advent of social media? Because that must have been maddening. Whereas now, you can actually live tweet a game, and you do. Um, yeah, yeah. And the commentary is fantastic. I'd actually yeah. love to have you on TV. It's like, bloody hell, Kendrava, what are you doing? Uh, you, you, you know can't what? wait to get rid of him. I actually asked, I did a few months ago, I set up a separate account just to tweet when Samp were playing because I knew, and I still know to this day, that I shouldn't really be tweeting stuff like fuck off Kendrava from my <laughs> business account. But I can't help myself, you know? Anyone who's followed a team that Kandreva has played for at some point has definitely shouted fuck off Kandreva at their TV or in the stadium or whatever you know what I mean he's just that he's that kind of player but yeah I keep meaning to flip to the other account but ah you know um I only really in the last few years started properly following Sampdoria I don't I don't think I've missed a minute of them and I'm I mean like I watch friendlies on their Facebook page and stuff like that I'm that sad but Maybe the last two or three seasons, I, I haven't missed a minute uh, of Samp playing because it is so much easier. Like I say, their their Facebook page, you can watch their friendlies against you know pub teams in the summer before the, the league starts, where they're you know sticking 14, 15 past kids or whatever, um, quite happily. Whereas before, a couple of years ago, yeah, I, don't, I can't even imagine what it was like trying to follow an Italian team from from another country. I mean. Lots of people say it, and it is true. Serie A is miles behind as far as marketing their product goes, unfortunately. Um, they've got a long way to come. But each club, I think, Sampdoria are just starting to sort of get a grip of it themselves. That They're actually pretty good for tweeting out what's going on and, and doing stuff on their Facebook and putting out videos on YouTube and that kind of thing. So they make it a lot easier um, to follow them. And... Obviously, everyone knows what Roma's been doing the last couple of years on Twitter. They've been incredible for. I mean, they've. I think they are. They have the best marketing in City. I think the social media team at Roma is second to none, and not just yeah. in Italy, but in the world. Well, it came yeah. out of nowhere as well. It seems yeah. like you know nothing, and then suddenly you know they were everywhere and they were doing all this great stuff, all this great content, and hooking up, excuse me, with people and just you know being nice guys on Twitter, which is quite unusual. So. <laughs> Right. You know, Sampdoria only won City A once in 1991 yeah. and has since struggled, but they continue to be a historic side. Good. In many ways, it kind of parallels Scotland. So mm. what's it like being a fan of a team who doesn't dominate both domestically and internationally? It's a mindset, I suppose, isn't it? Some people just automatically like the underdog or want the underdog to do well. Some people much prefer to follow a team who actually win things i've never been the latter i've always been someone who roots for the underdog whether that's consciously or not um following sampdoria you know it has its it has its plus points in the sense that the only way is up certainly for sampdoria at the moment the only way is up for a lot of different reasons um last season was particularly poor um when your best player or your standout player, I don't want to go on about him again, but when your standout player is Antonio Candreva, you know you're in trouble. You know what I mean? So uh, we have the oldest squad in Serie A at the moment, and it shows there's it's, there's desperate need for investment. The owner ended up in prison. At the back end, well, not in prison, he's on the house arrest at the back end of last year, so we're still waiting on new owners, but apparently a couple of American consortiums have... Uh, got pretty well down the path to, to coming in and taking over. So we'll see how that goes. I will uh, say this. I, not, sorry to interrupt, but I will say that yeah. as much as I'm excited to see if that consortium does take over, there has been a lot of American investment, particularly in Serie yeah, um, yeah. But come on, you know you're going to miss Massimo Ferraro. Come on. You know you're going to miss his batshit craziness. <laughs> as it's an fine. Yeah. His, his bullshit, for want of a better word, is fine from the outside looking in, from the inside looking out. It's the worst. Right. His, some of his decisions, I mean, I'm going to say allegedly again, but, you know, 
where's the money is a, a commonly asked question uh, a lot of the time. He never put a penny of his money in at all. Right. Uh, and he last season, for whatever reason, he loaned out a lot of our strikers and left us very, very light up front to the point where we had Qualiarella, who is fantastic, obviously, but he's 39. Right. Um, and a young kid that we got on loan from Ukraine in January. Uh, and Chicho Caputo was our front line, right. basically, who is also in his early 30s, maybe mid-30s now. Um, Kandreva on the wing, he's in his mid-30s. Gabi Dini, who's perma, perma injured, broken, basically, he's in his early 30s. So we had no one, essentially, up front. But he loaned out Caprari to Verona, who went on to have the season of his life right. last season for Caprari, to the point where I'm not sure if he's been called up for Italy yet, but he's looking like he might get a call up for Italy. And uh, Bonnet Zoli to Salernitana, who more or less kept them up. Right, right, he saved that team, yeah. And they, yeah, and they're both, you know, in their 20s. Bonnet Zoli's in his early 20s. So, yeah, he loaned them out when clearly we could have done with them ourselves. So he made lots of really crazy, awful decisions. Um, the season before last, we were we, the first half of the season before last, when we had Ranieri in charge, we were doing incredible stuff. We beat Inter, right. we beat Lazio. Uh, we were we beat Fiorentina. We were beating teams we had no business beating, um, playing you know fast counter-attacking football, um, and it was great. And then the second half of that season, everyone sussed out what we were doing. And we were ranked rotten. From then on, things just got worse and worse and worse. But anyway, oh God, it's boring to talk about and listen to. <laughs> no, it's, it, but it is interesting though because it is it's a team that doesn't get enough discussion especially you know when you find fans of like a, a squad like this and i want to hear what they have yeah, to say yeah. for sure especially you're watching week in and week out but again also like as you said you're cheering for the underdogs what i've also noticed with i have friends that are scottish they also love the underdog teams mm. is that a scottish thing that is like yes. is yeah. that in the dna really that's ingrained in us yeah we're a, a very small country there's only about five or six million people in scotland um, we're a very small country. We like to think we punch above our weight uh, in certain matters. Um, but yeah, that's yeah, that's ingrained in the Scottish mentality for sure. Um, we are a nation of physically quite small people anyway. <laughs> yeah, but you're uh, tough. You're, you're tough. I mean, look, you watch Six Nations rugby. You watch the Scottish team. It's like you're getting sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. The thing is that being a Scotland fan is very much like being a Sampdoria fan at the moment that I mean, every football fan thinks that their team uniquely puts them through the mill and, you know, builds up your hopes and then sets fire to it and then pisses on the ashes. You know what I mean? Everyone thinks that's that's their team. But Scotland, my God, no one just puts you through the ringer like Scotland. I mean, we, we have this peculiar thing. We go through a cycle and I'm 46 now and I've seen it happen over and over again. But we go through this cycle of rubbish, we get a little bit less rubbish. And then there's this weird sort of collective delusion that comes over everyone where we're like, oh, okay, we're not rubbish. Maybe we're going to do quite well. And then maybe we'll get another win. And we're like, hey, Price, we're going to, you know, we're going to win the Euros. <laughs> really, really delusional stuff like that. It's, it's tongue in cheek mostly. You know, I mean, we know we're not good. But a little part of your brain goes, well, you know, maybe we will. But that's, that's part of being, you know, supporting an underdog. Right. Where you think, well, if we beat this team, we've only got to play, you know, this team next we'll beat them no problem and then we get we play that next team and we get killed 4-0 and the cycle starts again you know so I mean there was a time in the 1978 World Cup our manager was genuinely genuinely touting us to win the World Cup in 1978 wow. and a lot you know some people a lot of people did buy into this weird national delusion it was very odd we you know we weren't going to win the World Cup we, but we did our usual thing. So we got there. Our group was, I think, it was Holland, Peru, and Iran. So we were like, ah, we'll, we'll breeze past Iran and Peru. And then it will, you know, we'll come up second in the group behind Holland. That'd be great. I mean, we've never got through the group stages of any national tournament ever. Wow. Um, yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. I mean, we've gone out, we've, we've, we've gone out on goal difference at least once, maybe twice. But um, Right. That I knew. I didn't know about the group. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there was a time when we qualified for World Cups fairly regularly mm -hmm. until about 1998. We, we, you know, I think we did five in a row or something, but there was a bit of a running joke of, I think, 
there was three World Cups where our, our qualifying group, we got drawn with Brazil. So 82, 90, 98, we got drawn with Brazil. So it's just like immediately you're playing for second place. You know it straight away. But I mean, even in 78, we got beat by Peru. We didn't bother scouting them or any of their players. We were just, ah, it's just Peru, you know. And they had an amazing player. I can't remember his name, but he scored two free kicks. It was just like, what? And then we drew with Iran. (laughs) And then we beat Holland, which is just 100% typical Scotland. You know, we did nothing against the two teams we should have done something against. And then we beat Holland because it didn't matter. You know, it didn't matter if we beat Holland at that point. We weren't going to qualify. And it's just, I mean, arguably our 82 squad would have been the one that should have done something. We had the backbone of Liverpool's early 80s team. We had Sunas, Douglish, uh, Alan Hansen. We had uh, a couple of the Knott's Forest players from then mm-hmm. when they were winning the European Cup, uh, Robertson. Uh, we had a couple of Ipswich players when they were winning UEFA Cups. We had a decent squad in 82, right. but we got drawn in the group with Brazil. Right. So we're up against the Brazil 82 team who, you know, you know what they're yeah. Uh, <laughs> as my friend Stuart Hostfield uh, penned the book, Brazil 1982, The Glorious Family. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's just, it's so true. You know, he was on the podcast season one discussing it because on paper, that team should have dominated just one every yeah. game 10 nil. That's it. Like, yeah, yeah. no one's beating them. And, you know, Italy, they did our thing. We did our thing. But, uh, you know, <laughs> you know we're just. Uh, just, you know, there's, a, there's a semi-famous, and I don't know if it's true, story that, but I could I could believe it easily, that when we played Brazil, uh, a player called Davey Neri, who was, uh, I think he was a centre-back for us, um, played for Dundee United, so he, he wasn't bad particularly, but he scored an absolute belter of a goal against Brazil in the game from outside the 18-yard box, just pinged it straight into the roof of the net. And uh, apparently, I can't remember which player, I think maybe Doug Leach or something, came up to him and said, oh, God, what have you done? Now you made them angry. <laughs> so he basically came back and stuck four past us in the next, like, I think it took them 15, 20 minutes or something to score four goals past us. Like a Zico free kick into the top <laughs> corner. Socrates just pinged it from, like, 30 yards. And, yeah, apparently, I don't know if that's true or not, but I can easily believe it. I mean, it, it feels like something that is, uh, you know, if the legend became fact print the legend on that one. That, that's Absolutely. So you know, you're also, in the Scottish League, you're a fan of Heart of Midlothian. Yeah. Um, and playing the top uh, Scottish top flight. How did that fandom come about? No. Uh, yeah, when I was about nine years old, my auntie bought me a full Celtic kit. Now, my granddad was a Rangers fan. Oh, uh, <laughs> He just said, no. <laughs> not happening, do something about it. So I don't really know what was going on in the background, but not long after that, a guy who lived up the road from me used to regularly go and watch Hearts, um, who were the local Edinburgh team, or one of the local Edinburgh teams. I grew up just outside Edinburgh. So it was my local team, so it made sense. But I guess my dad must have said to him, look, do you want to take him to the Hearts games and get this Rangers Celtic, you know, shit off my back? <laughs> uh, so... I don't really know how it happened, but I ended up going to, to watch Hearts in about 1985 and I was about nine years old. And then, yeah, for the next three or four years, maybe, I think, I was a season ticket holder. So I was going to games, home and away. Wow. Um, in 80, the season 85-86, we pretty famously lost the league on the last day on goal difference, which was just heartbreaking. And then we lost the cup the following week as well so my introduction to heartbreak and uh, disappointment came basically within one season of following so you're just you're just programmed to love underdogs it seems that way doesn't it i mean it's a purely scottish thing i think but that's not to say i mean you know rangers celtic win everything and they've got of plenty course. of fans so it's not it's not a thing for every scottish person but yeah i guess that's part of me it's part of my dna i guess yeah i like to watch really shit teams struggle you know the the interesting thing though is that scottish football and a lot we we mentioned aberdeen earlier but like scottish football from an outsider's perspective i'm no expert on the league but as i try and find that understanding it always comes down to those two teams celtic and rangers it's never like even if 
like let's just say Aberdeen wins like 10 years in a row, it's still yeah. going to come down to those two squads. Is it because of the violence in history or is it because of the fact that the, they're just so huge and they're global brands at this point? Yeah, they are, believe it or not, quite a big global brand. Um, excuse me, but everything that goes with it, um, and I'm not going to say anything on that because, my God, the shit that comes at you if you start down that road. Yeah, no, no, yeah. But, uh, no. <laughs> uh, but yeah, there, there is... They, they, they are by far the biggest teams fan-wise. They're by far the biggest teams in terms of revenue. Um, yeah, if, you, if I, you know, if, I, if I'm abroad in any fashion and someone clocks onto my Scottish accent, they'll ask, oh, are you a Rangers or Celtic fan straight away? They haven't got a clue who any of the other teams are. Um, and yeah, I guess why would they? Because the, they are the mid-80s when other teams were winning stuff like Dundee United and Aberdeen were winning the, the European Cup in the uh, sorry, the Cup Winners' Cup and the UEFA Cup. That's a long time ago now. That's, you know, it's nearly 40 years ago now. So, yeah, um, I never really sort of wanted to follow either of those teams. Like I say, that the whole thing sprang from my auntie. Right, right. I mean, I that's that. for Christmas. <laughs> it all kind of went, went from there. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't, it doesn't... It's... I don't really follow Scottish football as much as I follow Sampdoria, bizarrely. Wow. Um, I think, again, I was thinking about this before, before I knew I was going to speak to you. And the problem with the Scottish League is if you support any team other than Celtic or Rangers, you know that the best you're going to achieve is third place right. and maybe you'll win a cup. And, what, and we did that last season. Well, we didn't win the cup last season, but we came third by a, a distance. The next nearest team was nearly 20 points behind us, I think, in the end. And we got to the cup final, which we lost to Rangers. So when you know that's the best you're going to do, it's just like, oh God, it's hard to get up for it. You know what right. I mean? Next season, it's like, well, that's the best we can do again. Can I, am I really that interested? You know what I mean? Which is bad. It's sad. And, you know, but with Sampdoria, like I said, the only way is up. So it's, it's much more interesting in a lot of ways mm -hmm. because there is no, well, there is a ceiling. We're not going to win the league. I wouldn't have thought, but, um, but it feels like there's no ceiling from from where they are kind of thing so gotcha wow and again it's that mystery thing i suppose uh uh i know roughly what hearts are going to do you know what sort of players they're going to buy who they're going to feel that i have no clue who Sampdoria are going to get in <laughs> i don't think, <laughs> I don't they think do either. Either today. so yeah no. <laughs> but there is you're right though there is a bizarre topsy-turvy thing in city where if you play your cards right you could be atalanta shoestring exactly. budget yeah. doing explosive yeah. things in europe and domestically so there is hope i mean you know i had an atalanta fan on uh for season two who's followed the team his whole life and he's like this is sort of like he's like i'm living in and he's our age and he's like i'm living yeah. in glory years right now and yeah, yeah. by the time i'm alive and i sort of i was i was wow yeah you're right and i remember it, you know and it made me think of the early 2000s palermo side where they were in Champions League. Now they're in fighting to get into City yeah, yeah. G, third division. So it's that's how volatile that league is and what could happen. Yeah. So but they're the model now, aren't they? Atalanta are the model. Yeah. And everyone says it. Jean Paolo, you know, current Sant manager, said it as much a couple of weeks ago. Atalanta are the model now for what can be done because who were Atalanta before? Right. Um, but I, I think a long way, I mean, a very good start. I'm, I, I think I'm right in saying Atalanta own their ground. I don't they think do. They, they do. Yeah, which is a big, big thing, and it goes a long way to sorting out your finances. I think if you don't have to, you know, pay for a crumbling ground every season. Um, so I think that's where Italy really, really struggles, and I think they know it. Which is why you know uh, Inter Milan are trying to get a new stadium and all that kind of thing, and you know, own their own stadium. So until they do that or sort out some kind of arrangement with the the current financial situation where they're leasing these grounds that are just not fit for purpose anymore and get fans back. Um, yeah, it's going to be difficult to, but again, I don't know. I think Sassuolo are a very similar sort of situation mm -hmm. to Atalanta. I don't know if they own their own ground. I've got a feeling they do. Um, I don't know actually, because it's, it's, another... it's so rare for a team to own yeah. the stadium that it's like, I don't actually know who, I should know like when it actually happens because it is so rare, but I don't know because it's 
everywhere else in the world, it's just common that the squad yeah. has. That's yeah, it. Yeah, they own the ground. They just do. Yeah. So, the only reason they, they wouldn't own the ground is if they got into such financial problems that they have to right. sell it on to someone and then lease it back kind of thing, which has happened to a couple of English teams, I think, in the championship. Right. But yeah, it's not, you know, it's, it's less common. It's much more common to own your ground than right. not. You know, it's uh, it's quite astonishing, though. You're right. And like the things that they are light years behind. And I talk about this a lot on this podcast for that reason, where it's you it's still it's still the old man's game over there. And which is why I also feel like so many people from our generation are still in tune to City Off for that reason, because there is that glimmer of what the past was like. Not huge, but there's a glimmer of it. You know, this recently. Uh, you had a little like duality issue going on as Scotland were facing a very impactful Ukraine to qualify <laughs> for the World Cup. Yeah, Scotland yeah. didn't make it. They lost to a very powerful Ukraine side. Mm. But you're part Ukrainian. So I want to get into this for a little bit because sure. what was it like watching that game? <sighs> Especially mean, in these times. Yes. Yeah, I don't really... I mean, it's difficult with the Ukrainian thing because my granddad, who was Ukrainian, fully Ukrainian, um, he never really spoke about his family. Um, he came over with the Polish Free Army at the start of the war. So when Russia and Germany attacked at the same time, I think I'm right in saying that Ukraine didn't actually technically exist at that point. There was, there was you know, what we would call Ukraine now was the east of which would have been Russia and the, and the west of which would have been Poland. So he was in nominally the, the west of Ukraine, but was actually, I think, Poland at that point. So anyway, he joined the Polish Free Army, came over with them, fought against the Russians and the Germans, came over to, to the UK. And he never really spoke about any of what he left behind. We know he left behind his parents, and I think maybe, I think it was at least one sister, maybe maybe two, something like that. Um, we're not even 100% sure where he lived in Ukraine. He, he said that little about you know, what he had to leave behind. You can imagine how traumatic the whole thing was. But so, and I've tried to to sort of, because he said so little and we know so little, I've not really been able to trace who I might have as family in Ukraine. So I don't really have any ties physically with uh, anyone in Ukraine. But at the same time, it's part of my heritage. I'm, you know, I'm 25% Ukrainian. I can't escape that. So, but, I do, if I'm honest, feel more Scottish than I do. Well, yeah, I am. I'm, I am more Scottish than I am Ukrainian, you know, literally. But yes, but that game was still weird for obvious reasons. You know, I mean, we all know what's going on in Ukraine, and maybe for the first time in in Scottish football history, everyone wanted us to lose. We're we're normally, you know, the underdog, and right. maybe a few people would be cheering for us to win. But I don't think anyone wanted us to win that outside of Scotland and even we were quite reticent to sort of say anything about winning the game to the point where Graham Souness actually said you know I hope Ukraine win but I want them to go to, right. to the World Cup kind of thing and he he got a fair bit of flack for that actually but I think you know people could see where it was coming from that the narrative was you know let, let not not let them win but you know certainly we hope they they do it kind of thing right so yeah playing against them it, it was weird but yeah, like I spoke before, we have this weird cycle where we build ourselves up and we're like, oh, it's only Ukraine, we'll, we, we should be able to beat them. But it, realistically, look at their team and who their players play for. Right. As compared to who our players, the majority of our players play for. We've got some players who, who are okay. Well, yeah, we've got Robertson at Liverpool. We've got Tierney at Arsenal, but he was injured. So we, we've nominally got a couple of decent players who play for premiership teams, but they're not, you know... They're not the standard of the Ukrainian players, or, or certainly they don't play to the standard of Ukrainian players when they play for Scotland. Robertson for Scotland has generally been a bit disappointing, to be honest. He doesn't he doesn't translate his Liverpool form to Scotland very often at all, unfortunately. Uh, and we don't, we still, I mean, we've we've never had a striker maybe in our whole history, to be honest. If we had a striker, we've probably done a lot better than we have. So there was no reason for us to think we're going to win this, but we 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 somehow delude ourselves into thinking, well, yeah, we should beat Ukraine. It's only Ukraine. I don't know where it comes from, you know what I mean? But And then we go into the game. They go 2-0 up inside, what was it, 10, 20 minutes or something. And, and 
we do our thing of scoring a goal late on to give ourselves a little bit of hope. And then I actually tweeted, you can go back and check my account. Really. I said, this game's going to end 3-1 to them because this is what always happens. We always score a goal, get a bit of hope, and then they score another one late on. I think You're it's the last angry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was the last kick of the game they scored to make it 3-1. I, mean, I wasn't happy about you know predicting it, but it's just what we always do. So I was there was a part of me that was happy to see them go through, but they deserved to win. They were much the better team than Scotland were. Um, and I don't think we would have done anything against Wales anyway, because they are, I mean, Gareth Bale is like a cheat code or something. He's just, he's, you know, if he actually liked playing football, he'd be incredible. I, I get the impression he's one of these players who doesn't actually like playing football anymore. I mean, he's kind of said as much. He says, you know, he thought, he thinks that golf is more important or it takes it more occupies his mind he looks at football the way i guess the rest of us in the real world look at our jobs like it's It's like but he gets paid handsomely but you're right like when he he is a cheat code because when he turns it on son of a bitch is extraordinary he's like really just unbelievable but then when he's off and you and he shows he doesn't care it's so upsetting. It's so upsetting as a, as a neutral. I mean, look, yeah, yeah. when you're playing against them, it's like, I don't, you know, fine, turn it off this game. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. When he turns it on and looks to be the sniper that he was in his early days at Tottenham and his early days at even Madrid, he's, he's frightening. And he's also huge. He's a huge, he's a tall, he's, like, he could be an NBA player. Very, very strong. Yeah, very strong. I mean, I'm sure I read a couple of years ago that he said when, was it when he, I think when he went, did he go from Southampton to Spurs? Is that, yeah. Was it Southampton he went? I think so. Yeah, it was. Whenever he went to Spurs from, I'm pretty sure it was Southampton. I might be wrong. But anyway, I'm pretty sure he said after that and all the, the media spotlight that went with it and the pressure and everything, that was when he kind of stopped enjoying playing football. He, it wasn't, he liked playing with his mates. And I think he looks at playing with Wales as like playing with his mates. So he enjoys it because it's his friends, whereas right. playing for like Real Madrid or Spurs is just pressure and nothing else. And I don't right. think, I think that stopped him enjoying it, which is fair enough. I can't argue with that. Now time for a coffee break. Curva Mundial is sponsored by Mod Cup Coffee in Jersey City. But you can get it anywhere in the world from modcup.com. Mod Cup, drink modern coffee. Use code MUNDIAL for 10% off your first order. That being said, we're going to move on to the final part of this podcast, my favorite part. The rapid fire three questions. Uh, So, yeah, this is is fun. (laughs) Uh, It pertains to your club. Uh, So we'll we'll go with Sampdoria here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. If you could bring back one retired player to your club, former player, alive or dead, who would it be and why? Oh, uh, right. I could cheat here a little bit. So, uh, Igemeli Delgol, does that count as one person? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Why not? Uh, Valley, that's okay. Yeah. One person. They're twins, you know, same <laughs> and all that. <laughs> you know, or, the other to win? it's a symbiotic relationship. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Born from the same mother. No, but, uh, <laughs> Or, or what Sampdoria need more than anything in the world is a midfield bastard, for want of the better way of putting it. Someone who can get into the middle of the park and just kick people to death and get the ball back. So I would maybe bring back Graham Sunis to Sampdoria. Okay. Uh, not now, he's in his 60s or 70s, but, you know, yeah. when he was uh, when he was in there in his sort of early 30s, I would get, I think I would get him back in. Yeah, that'd be good. Yeah. All righty. Now, we're going to pretend money is not an issue. Sure. It's not a. There's no ceiling here. So if Sampdoria could sign one player today, who would it be and why? You know, I I don't know players of this day and age that well to say. I mean, I don't want to say the obvious names. I mean, I mean Messi would be wasted at Sampdoria. Even you know, no one would be able to get the ball to him. Uh, <laughs> like I say, we really need someone in midfield to get the ball back and. and and you know, tackle players. We do, we don't have anyone who's actually able to tackle. Who would I get? Oh God. 
who wins the ball these days? Are there even ball-winning midfielders anymore? There are. There are. There's uh, there's Frank Kesse, who uh, leaving Milan this summer. Sandro Tonelli, also another Milan player. Oh, yeah, Tonelli. Yeah, let's have him. I'll okay. Tonelli in a heartbeat. Yeah. Yeah, the second that. person in this season that has uh, requested for Tonelli. So <laughs> I hope Milan pin him down. Um, you're right, though. That is a that is a position that is sort of bygone at this point. Just the, the, the midfield bastard that is just going to let the opponents leave the field with bloody ankles. Absolutely. You know, like yeah, I want someone to tell them what they're going to do. Yeah. You, you want someone that's going to shout at the opposition players how they're going to hurt them. And, you know. You know, it's I'm trying like that's. You know, there was a point like in the mid 2000s, I feel like England was lush with them. Yeah, yeah. Lush with players like that. Well, the early to mid 2000s, um, you know, the yeah, even because and yes, there was too much finesse and flair. But uh, what's his name? Who's who's coaching Barca now? Javi. Javi. He was another one that was just like and I hated, hated playing against him because of that reason. It's just like, oh, man, you know, he's just a great piece of artillery. But they had um, they had Busquets. And Busquets, is, right. You know, that's, that is, you know, in fact, yeah, let's have him. That is 100% okay. his game. He is just, you know, wind up the opposition, get someone sent off, uh, put in horrible, horrible tackles and get away with it somehow and get you the ball back. That's, that's what we need so badly. You're right. It is a bygone position. And I wonder if that also is reflective of the time that you just talked about. You opened up a Pandora's box in my mind. So uh, <laughs> you're welcome. Um, you know, as we talked about how it was every man earlier or every, you know, the regular bloke playing that you would smoke the cigarettes and just run onto the field. They didn't look like athletes, but they were just mm. they were just warriors. Now it's everyone has to be so prim and proper and watching out that, you know, even a vicious, you don't want violent tackles. You don't want injuries in the no, game, no. but they are part of it. And you don't see that. Tonelli is, is a little bit like that, but it took him a little, you know, it's, he's still young and he's going to develop that game, but that Reno got to, so that Busquets, that. I was just going to say, Cusco. Yeah. yeah no. was probably the last I can think of who was just an asshole. He's just a midfield right. asshole who gets in everyone's face, basically. And it's none of that, you know, and I think that's why Antonio Conte does so well when he matters because he finds ways to make a nice guy an asshole. And that's yeah, yeah. It's kind of what, you know, if you watch the, the Prime series about the Amazon Prime series where Mourinho was managing Spurs, he kept telling the team, be bastards, be bastards. Yeah, yeah. And I don't see many of them anymore. So it is funny that yeah. you, you're in need of that position and, it, oh, and it's almost so on its way out and it's on its way out. It's almost non-existent. I mean, the only nominally our ball-winning midfielder is uh, a guy called Morton Torsby. Yeah. Now, the problem we have with Morton Torsby is, and there was talk of Inter trying to buy him start of last season gone. And even I think mid-season, there was still talk of teams like Inter and Atalanta buying him. Now, I, I you know, he's a, he's a lovely guy. I, I 100% don't see what they see in this guy <laughs> because he is a walking yellow card, not because he's tough or hard or anything like that. He just... He's a big guy. He's a little bit clumsy. And I think every other midfielder in Italy is sussed that if they get within a yard of him and fall over, the ref just immediately gives a free kick and a yellow card. I've watched it every single, like I said, I've watched every game. And every game, same thing happens. Anytime he gets within a yard of the ball and a player, the player goes down because they know that the ref will just yellow card him straight away. And it's so frustrating. Oh, God. So he might as well just go in and, you know, elbow them in the face or something because he's going to get the card anyway. <laughs> All or nothing. All or nothing, baby. Yeah, exactly. And the final question here, what has been your favorite moment as a fan? Oh, God. Um, that's hard. Probably, uh, oh, I'm going to get pillars for this. But it was probably when Maradona scored that, you know, the best goal in history against England in 86. That was joyous. I mean, that was incredible. Um, and in fairness, there are a lot of English football fans who will admit that it is the best right. goal ever under the circumstances through gritty teeth. But And I just want to clarify that it's not because in the same game, he also does Hand of God. So it's oh, no, not, not that. the most famous oh, no, no. goal. It's the one that's <laughs> after yeah, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not, yeah, no. 
No, not that one. No, the the the, the dribble from the halfway line yeah, where he just I mean, sails past everyone. Yeah. Um, no, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not that fussed by the hand of God goal. I mean, I get why. Obviously, I get why the fans <laughs> are raging about it, but. No, I know, I've, I rarely think about that unless I'm bringing it up on Twitter to wind people up. You know, I mean, there's just lots of Scottish accounts that bring that up regularly, particularly <laughs> to wind up Peter Shilton, who to this day just cannot stand Diego Maradona at all. But I mean, you, you will see meme after meme of basically based on the premise that if Peter Shilton could actually jump, then that goal would never have happened. I mean, what business is a guy who, how tall is Maradona? Five foot four? He's three? tiny, man. I don't even, what, if, he, if he's five two, he's a lot. Yeah, what business has he got out jumping a goalkeeper who of six foot? Right. You know what I mean? It's just, so yeah, you, yeah. I'd, I'd really think about it unless I'm laughing at Peter Shilton. <laughs> <laughs> but but the goal after, yeah, the, the goal of the century, oh. which is that. Yeah, wow. I mean, if you think about everything surrounding the game, you know, I'm sure you're aware of the history between England and, well, Britain and, and Argentina. With yeah, the fault in the water and, early, and all that kind of, and how the Argentine, Argentinians feel about that from their side as well. So the, everything surrounding it, the pressure on Maradona at that point. I mean, that Argentina team weren't, you know, they were not, they weren't terrible, but they weren't great. Right. Well, yeah, he was carrying the whole country on his shoulder, the pressure. And to do that is, yeah. And against, and again, it wasn't a, it was a great England team. It wasn't against just like a run of the mill English side. It was, you know, the fact that when you see him go past Gary Lineker and that right before he hits the goal, it's just the slalom. It doesn't look real. It again, it looks like a PlayStation where you hit the turbo button, you know. No, you see, I mean, he's going past, past, old school 80s English midfielders and defenders who, well, you know what it's like in those days. They, they break your leg as soon as yeah. look at it. And it wasn't just an English thing. It's, you know, there's Spain, Italy. Real hard leg-breaking tackles going in all over the place. And he's riding them and shooting past them like they're not there. Uh, yeah. Incredible. Great moment. Fantastic. Graham, this has been so much fun. We've covered so much. I really can't thank you enough. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, if you enjoyed the conversation here, uh, check out the North Curve. Uh, Graham, if you want to sell the site a little bit. Oh, God, right. Uh, Yeah, thenorthcurve.com. If you're a man in your mid-40s who likes football, there might be something in there for you. Have a look. Um, God, I'm terrible at selling myself in. It's all good, man. You're very good at selling yourself because the website – We'll sell everything for you. It is, you're going to go there trying to find one item. You will find one item and you will walk away with 10. Um, and I am not uh, exaggerating. I've, I'm friends with all the same age, said the same thing. Funny enough is that um, a number of your customers have appeared, already appeared on this podcast. So it's, uh, oh, okay. yeah, it's not, it's not just me. It, they're great. Well, stuff. If you, also, if you want to, if you want to see someone telling Antonio Candreva to F off on a fairly regular basis, then my Twitter account is the one for you. <laughs> Fantastic. Graham, thank you so much. Okay. Follow us on Twitter at Curva Mundial Pod and subscribe to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening.